1: Hello. Hi, this is Jamie. Hi, this is Daniel Eberskin. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm here with Amy. Yes, lovely to talk to you.
2: Likewise, yes, absolutely.
1: We hear that you are an experienced podcaster at this point. Is that true? I
2: have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Let's try.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy and this is Clever. Today we are very excited to tell you that we're talking to renowned architect Daniel Liebeskind. You know who he is because he's an internationally prominent figure in architecture and urban design who's responsible for buildings all over the world commercial centers, residential towers, and notably many museums and cultural monuments, including the Jewish Museum in Berlin, the Imperial War Museum North in Manchester, England, the Denver Art Museum, and Royal Ontario Museum, among others.
1: But perhaps he's most famous for being the master plan architect for the reconstruction of the World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan. He was born to Holocaust survivors in Poland, immigrated to the United States as a teenager, and studied at Cooper Union and the University of Essex. He runs his architecture firm, Studio Libeskind, with his wife and business partner, Nina.
3: He's also an artist, designer, and educator, and, fun fact, as a child, he was an accordion virtuoso. Jamie and I both found this talk to be really powerful, so we hope you guys do too. Here it is.
2: My name is Daniel Libeskind. I am speaking from New York City, my city. I do what I love to do, and there is no why. You know, why do we love a rose? I have no idea. It just is.
1: That's a beautiful answer. So you were born in Poland to parents who survived the Holocaust. Could you talk about what your childhood was like? I grew up in a
2: very dim time. Not only in the aftermath of extermination of my family and millions of Jews in that part of Europe, but in the aftermath of a communist dictatorship with a clear anti-Semitism born as part of its policy. So I grew up in a gray world, a world that only had glimpses of beauty in, in the beautiful culture of Poland and in, in music of, you know, Chopin and, and the great writings of mickiewicz But otherwise, the daily life was a life in fear, uh, a life of oppression. That's what happens on the a life in a void because I had no, you know, no family. Not a, you know, nobody had any family left.
1: As a young child, were you very aware of what was happening around you? Of
2: course. Of course. We were hounded as kids because we were Jews uh, by other kids. We knew that even as kids that we were living under an oppressive regime because my parents had to speak in whispers. Uh, my father was often called to be interrogated by the police Uh, my mother's little shop uh, was occupied by police checking you know her modest little store which where she was a seamstress if she was doing anything illegal so it's a kind of a nightmarish dream now that i think about it with these glimpses of beauty uh, of poland which is ancient and beautiful
3: was there any effort on the part of your parents to explain what was going on or to let you know that it wasn't like that all over the world, that there was hope of a brighter future?
2: Well, we huddled around Radio Free Europe very quietly. You know, you could you know, you would have to have a listening device today to, to even hear what they were saying, because no one wanted the neighbors to know what, that you were listening to Radio Free Europe where you could get news. Otherwise, it was always propaganda. Uh, and, you know, nobody had to explain it to kids. Kids pick up these things, you know, like oxygen from the air. It it was just apparent. Uh, You don't need to have any kind of roadmap. You know you're living in that dismal, oppressive world. And and every child knows what freedom is. Every child knows what liberty is and what it means to see smiles on people's faces or run on the street unobstructed by, by others who want to trip you up. Yeah, so you talked
1: about pockets of beauty. What were some of those that you saw
3: as a child?
2: Oh, my God, you know, going to some of the great churches of Poland, you know, going to Krakow and seeing the incredible city and its medieval architecture, the beauty of Zakopane and the, and the Tatra Mountains, uh, the countryside of Poland, you know, which is, until today, uh, intensively agriculture, with, with the beauty of earth and farming. I, 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 we loved it. It was, it was just the other side of our experience. And sometimes we have glimpses into it, uh, when we would be taken to those places.
3: So under the force of such oppression, are these pockets of beauty how you personally helped yourself escape despair?
2: Well, you know, I escaped despair by, you know, reading books, by looking outside of my window, you know, observing what was outside of the window. I saw them in their courtyard. I played, you know, sometimes with my sister was much older than I am three years, four years older, so I can't really say I played with it, but I invented games, imaginary games, with very, you know, limited means. We didn't have many things. We lived only in a two-room apartment where the bathtub was in the kitchen, the kitchen was smaller than my corridor today. So, uh, you know, you have to invent, and, and there's no sadness in it. It's just a world you're born into, and for you, it's the real world. Mm-hmm.
3: So, I read that you became an accordion virtuoso, at a young age, and I wonder, you know, if discovering your love of music was part of this beauty.
2: Well, definitely, music requires a great uh, discipline, and you have to practice in order to play, Uh, and I became a virtuous at a young age, but also, in an ironic way, it was due to the fact that my parents were afraid to bring the piano through the courtyard, so they brought me the piano in a suitcase, hidden, and that was my fate. And I loved the accordion. I loved uh, what it looked like. I loved the sound it produced. And I was able, even at a young age, to transcribe classical music. I never played folk music on the accordion. I played Bach. I played, you know, beautiful things. And surely music, I would say, was a huge part of my childhood and its light. Was there conflict
3: over excelling In music, and that sort of brings you to the public forefront, because you talked about feeling very secretive and on the down low as a
2: Jew. Did you have to navigate? You know, excelling is is kind of free. When you excel in, in a subject in school, when you excel in music, when you excel in drawing, which I also loved, it's recognized no matter who you are, where you come from. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's a language that speaks universally to everyone and you can't deny it even if you don't n- like the origin of it. So surely excelling was a very important part of my childhood. And until I was in you know, school studying architecture, my parents never asked me f- for what grade I received. They always assumed we were both, my sister and I. The tough students. They never asked what grades you had. They assumed that it was just a straight A. <laughs>
3: oh, that's nice confidence in you. And it also says something <laughs> about <laughs> the drive.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we don't make ourselves. We are made by our mothers, by our fathers, where we come from, by their values. And um, I am so lucky that I have parents who were very strong given the circumstances under which they lived, who re- retained their. Jewish identities who were not fellow travelers to make their life easier, who believed in in things, who, who believed about things more than just about themselves. That was a lucky thing to have my mother and my father like that.
3: And in your teenage years, you moved to the United States with your family. Can you talk about the reason for that move and then what the transition was like for you?
2: We were really stuck in Poland with the Iron Curtain. We wanted to leave. You know, it was too late for us to leave. The borders had been closed even though my parents had visas to other countries. And then when the borders first opened, the Jews were allowed to leave for Israel and we left. We were in the first train uh, to freedom. And so I always have two paradises, you know, one of Israel, which my God, it was the biggest shock in my life. I saw people smiling. I saw a society that was not in, living in fear. I saw the blue skies. I saw oranges. I saw things that I never saw before. And then my father's only surviving uh, member of his family, his sister, who survived Auschwitz, was in America. And he was determined to come to America. And so we did.
3: I love that story of moving to Israel. Did you feel embraced by society for the first time?
2: No, I don't think so. Because, you know, we spoke Polish and Yiddish. Yiddish was not really uh, liked by the, by the Israel of that time. Because they thought it was the language of the losers, you know, East European Jews who were murdered. They wanted to develop Hebrew. We acquired Hebrew pretty quickly. But no, I didn't feel embraced indebtly, but I, I felt embraced that I was in a place that was really one's own, that you didn't have to fear that that the policeman and the doctor and the prostitute and the garbage collectors were all Jews. We were so shocked by it. And of, of course, the beauty of Israel itself, just the beauty of the ocean, which I never saw in my life. Imagine how shocking it is to see Stars reflecting the ocean in the evening in Tel Aviv. Oh, it changes your life. Yeah,
3: I love hearing it from you. You have such a poetic way of speaking that I, I felt transported. Ah, thank you. Your reason for the move to the United States was for your father to reunite with his sister, his only living relative.
2: It relatives. was basic reason. You know, it wasn't. You know, quite frankly, there was a conflict between my mother and my father. My, my father was raised in the Kibbutz. I have a big family in the Kibbutz. I also had a big family in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Uh, my mother was an independent woman who wanted to have her little shop and Asia was a difficult country. It was only a few years old when we came. So I think my father's uh, will want to, to come to America. That was his, his dream to be reunited with his sister. And we did. And I'm so lucky. I always say, you know, people have only one paradise and I have two.
3: You do have a way of looking at the bright side (laughs) So you're a teenager in the United States You are a stranger in a strange land In New York City, correct?
2: Yes, we land on a boat We don't speak the language We have a couple of suitcases, no possessions We are like the eternal immigrants that came to America We get off the boat We go somewhere to the Bronx we don't know what to do, <laughs> where to live. We're on the streets. We're looking for things. And yet that feeling of being an immigrant in New York and America was so powerful because we all turned to each other and said, like, why is everybody so nice to us? Why are people nice? Why is everybody, you know, smiling at us? We felt really that we found really the promised land. I tell you as difficult as the life of my parents was, they were of professionals that to find low paying jobs and yet moving to the Bronx and we moved to, you know, a, a neighborhood built by social Democrats as the first housing project in the United States, public housing project, which was featured in an old film called the garment jungle. And my mother, who was a garment worker was lucky to receive an apartment. And we lived in this walk up, which is no longer there. That was kind of iconic. It was, it was, Immigrants living there, you know, sitting on the stoops, sitting on their fire escapes discussing issues of politics, of philosophy, of theology, all day long and all night long. Well, all day long, not because of red work. But we, kids, would, would discuss those things just like that.
3: Did you find a community right away?
2: Oh, yes. It was an amazing community. I felt like, you know, I was, it was a community that was uh, spoke Yiddish, spoke Polish, There were Italians in our neighborhood. There were African-Americans. There were Irish. It was really a beautiful experience of of the, the microcosm that the Bronx really is.
1: Yeah, there must have been such a sense of possibility and opportunity at that point.
2: Oh, my God. It's hard to even transmit it. But just the sense that you have been propelled into something, you know, almost sacred. You know, something amazing, something that you cannot really foresee it was open. You know, the words we now use, freedom, liberty, which seem to be tired and non-expressive of these things, they are exactly that. That's what you felt. You Maybe you didn't express it that way as a kid, but you just felt, you know, the wind of possibility propelling you.
1: It's beautiful to hear that because, you know, having been born here and growing up here, you kind of just take it for granted because it's just here and that's just your life. But To hear the excitement and the wonder and the opportunity of people who have come to the United States from other countries, specifically those who have had difficult lives or been oppressed, you realize how great it is. You know,
2: my father, to his dying day, he died in his, you know, 90s, he said, you know, if people in America knew where they were, they would bend down and kiss the earth.
3: I will do that as soon as we're done talking. (laughs)
2: That's true. (laughs) It's true. We do take it for granted. Many of us just think it's just fine and we do X and Y. But there is no such country in the world with all its problems, with all its uh, inequities. There is no such country in the world whose mission is affirmation of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Wow.
1: I feel very patriotic right now.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: You know, I love America. You know, it's not America that belongs to this group or that group or this group or, or that person. But it's really America formed by such geniuses. You know, the founders of this country. I mean, Washington could have been for life. People wanted him to serve for life because he was a great general. And he said, no, I'm just an ordinary citizen like everyone else. I've had my time now we vote for the next person that's never happened in the world where a powerful leader said no I'm just a regular person I was just doing something of my job and now somebody else has to be elected that's more than any Napoleon that's more any than any Alexander the Great that's more than anything that's been in history Let's talk
1: about architecture. You mentioned uh, that you saw some beautiful cathedrals back when you were in Poland and and traveling Europe. Was there a particular moment in your life where you decided that you wanted to pursue architecture? Did you have an experience of some sort or how were you exposed to that?
2: Well, I had revelation. You know, when I visited Krakow, there is a famous underground salt mine called Jelitska and it's an amazing experience it's it's it was already visited by the great german romantics like goethe and others because it's deep underground it's in white you know and in this white salt are carved cathedrals and amazing sculptures and reflected in black lakes that have no light and i remember that experience when i was i don't know seven eight years old when i when i first descended into this white world of salt with black lakes, the kind of fantasy, the kind of magic of dreaming, dreams that have come to reality definitely propelled me to art because I, I was an avid drawer, painter. When I was in Israel, I painted landscapes, uh, you know, just what a young artist would do, you know, painted still lifes, painted the harvesting of... The potatoes in my kibbutz and, and all sorts of things like that. So there were seeds, but I didn't really know about them because when I came to the Bronx, I went, uh, because my sister actually was a student there before me, and she told me I must go there to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a school basically specializing in, in the scientific subjects, in mathematics, physics, chemistry. In fact, I was <laughs> in a, this is a slight aside, I was put into a special program because this was the time of the Sputnik. 1960s uh, and this was a a special program uh, called PSSC presidential science study committee specialist textbooks actually signed by John F. Kennedy to catch up with the Russians in space technology so all my you know people in my uh, school in the high school went straight from high school to PhD program at MIT at Harvard you know the finest universities in the United States you know you can skip all the banality you can go straight to advanced calculus to you know quantum physics and so on. And I was kind of put into this program, even though it was re- really not my interest, but I was imprisoned in, in part of the Cold War in studying these subjects. <laughs> so when I applied to the School of Architecture in New York, the Cooper Union, I remember the committee asking me, why is someone with my background applying to the School of Architecture? Shouldn't I be applying to MIT or another school that would take my you know straight A's from Francisco Science and, and give me a Fantastic education. (laughs) I said, no, no, I want to be an architect.
3: (laughs) What an exciting time for you. I'm imagining if, you know, high school to college, you have... The oppression of Poland in your background, the world opening up when you get to Israel, and then this possibility that comes when you arrive in America. And now we're talking about going to the moon
2: and to space. Even more, my first project, you know, all these brilliant kids around me, first year of high school, second year of high school, by science, They're doing science projects that win the Westinghouse prize, that win their prizes for, you know, nuclear engineering, their prizes for new inventions that will catch up with the Russians in space technology. And what do I do? I bring a gigantic model, I have no idea what the problem to do it, of a, I think it was a half inch scale model of a nuclear shelter, a perfect nuclear shelter. <laughs> in Ooh. which I employed my father, who was a pretty good artist, to even do little Campbell soup cans, because you know, I had the whole mother, <laughs> father, two children, and I had all the foodstuffs that are necessary to survive an atomic attack. Remember, this was a time when we had drills for mm-hmm. you know uh, the atomic you know the, the annihilation, the apocalypse. <laughs> you yeah. remember bringing to shelters. <laughs> and everybody was kind of laughing and they were they had these <laughs> smiles on their faces. What is this person doing? We're doing these amazing abstractions that can be calculated on a blackboard. And he's bringing bring a wooden model, cutaway model of the perfect, you know, double double beds, the pillows, the little carpets, <laughs> some of the books, the food. <laughs> That was really my first <laughs> unconscious architectural <laughs> project. <laughs> <laughs> Where you really
3: had to think the project all the way through, right down to the the necessary like elements for living and functioning in that space. <laughs> it was like a mad
2: project. It was super realistic. It wasn't abstract architecture. It was done with great love for every detail. And as I said, I had the help of my father to help me paint all these elements. And now in retrospect, it was some crazy work of art that didn't at all fit into (laughs) the horizon I was supposed to go into.
3: Sounds like you've really never been
2: afraid to stand out. Well, I was crazy. I just wasn't interested in those calculations. <laughs> <laughs> something impelled me to say, you know, we should do something very practical to survive. <laughs> <laughs> well, survival,
3: sure. That's
2: built into your DNA. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So you go through architecture school and then you end up designing projects and some of them had been described in, in the beginning as unbuildable but then you did have a couple of of projects that were built the Felix Nussbaum house and the Jewish Museum Berlin can you describe what the path was like from school to opening your studio and then getting these first buildings realized and built
2: well there's a lot uh, sort of, of water that has sort of fallen in between the Alaskakas and this because You know, it it wasn't so straightforward. My first year in school at the Cooper Union, if you got into the school, you could either become an artist or an architect. And it was called the foundation year. And I fell in love with painting, with drawing, you know, life drawing and so on. I thought, you know, I'm not going to be an architect. I'm I'm going to be an artist. And one evening I was sitting with my mother who had a wise, wise mind. And she said to me, do you really think you want to be an artist? You'll be so poor, you won't even be able to afford a pencil. Look at Andy Warhol, you know, he's just making the soup cans. Why don't you be an architect? Because, you know, you can always be an artist in architecture, but you cannot be an architect in art. And in this way, as she was taking the carp out of the bathtub, she said, in this way, you can catch two fish with one hook. Actually, really, it is my mother's advice that made me go into architecture. And then, you know, when I graduated and I had such fine, incredible mentors, you know, John Haddock, uh, Richard Meyer, Peter Eisenman. And there was really luminaries in the field yeah. and an amazing network of people that I met. But uh, after that, I, I felt when I graduated, uh, you know, with a professional degree, I felt totally ignorant because I knew about architecture. Right? I knew nothing about, you know, Buddhism. I knew nothing about the early Greeks. I knew nothing about what happened in China in the 11th century. So I decided I'm going to educate myself. And I was lucky to go to further education in, in the School of Comparative Studies in England at Essex University with more fantastic mentors. Joseph Rickwood, one of the famous historians of architecture. Dalibel vasily who passed away recently, a great philosopher from Prague. I suddenly realized, to the architecture, you need much more. You need not just know how to draw and how to make models and how to invent things. You need to know many other things. The field is just so vast, and so I was so lucky that you know throughout uh, the years I was able to delve into it. And I was you know for many years people thought me as an academic because I you know I taught in you know as a professor in different places. I taught architecture in a very unorthodox way, but I thought no. I'm not really a teacher. I, I'm an architect. Maybe one day I'll be able to, to build a building. And then I was just lucky that I entered a competition, and I won a competition, which is really usually just a ticket to oblivion. And somehow it was a turn in my life that such an unlikely project as the Jewish Museum or the Felix Oswald was actually built, which taught me a, a lesson that what is least likely to happen is most likely to drive your life, not the other way around.
3: Oh, that is an important lesson. And those are two really profound projects to be your first two to be realized. One's an art museum, and the other is a Jewish history museum in Berlin, which has incredible historical significance, to say the least. So how did you approach those and, and tackle them with your trademark sensitivity?
2: I won another competition before those two in Berlin. Which I call the City Edge competition, uh, which was a very radical building, diagonal building, traversing and rising upwards, which became impossible to build after the unification because the land became privatized and it was no It was the last competition of the e- EIBA, the International Bauausstellung in Berlin, in which many famous architects built their projects. Uh, Raymond Abraham, John Haydock, many, many famous architects built projects in Berlin. So that was my first kind of vision that that architecture could become a reality. But then when I won my first competition, which was for the Museum Berlin, it wasn't very clear to me what was going to happen because I never worked for another architect in my life. And I tried it for one day or two days. And I said, you know, it's not really for me. I don't like the atmosphere. I was very brash and, and, and impulsive. We were living in Milan at that time, and I had a little private educational institution called Architecture Intermundium, where People didn't get any credit from anybody, but I invented as an alternative to traditional schools of architecture and traditional ways to practice architecture. And I did this project from Milan, from that little institute with some very young students. When I came to Berlin, actually, we just stopped for a minute because I was on my way to the Getty. I was elected by the Getty to be a Getty scholar, which is a fantastic thing. You don't even apply for it. And then when we were in Berlin, I turned to Nina and I said, so what are we going to do? And clearly two roads had forked in my life. You needed a sphinx to answer it. And I said, let's stay in Berlin, but under one condition. I said to Nina, if only if you become my partner. And she said to me, but I've never been in an architect's office in my life. And I said, "I no, also, I have never been in an architect's office in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so that's, that means let's start. And of course, that was an adventure because... You know, it it was not an easy building to build. It was even at some point uh, unanimously voted, you know, the, the senator Berlin voted to scrap the building. Whoa. It's very unlikely you can build a building once the government decides it doesn't have, you know, the will or money or, or, or need to build such a building. And yet, even though it took 13 years to build a building, it taught me a lot about that you have to do what you believe in, that you can't just be, you know... Uh, blasé that you have to commit. You know, we moved to Berlin with our kids, which was not easy for somebody who was Jewish, who, who never stepped in Berlin. In all my years that I lived in Europe, I avoided Germany. Uh, and yet we moved to Berlin on, on the spur of the moment. And really my life changed. Our life changed. And I discovered so many things about myself and about the history and about the future.
3: What did you discover about yourself
2: primarily? I discovered about myself that you can't lay the sins of fathers grandfathers and their sons daughters that you have to open your eyes to a new time that you have to acknowledge that time moves on also you have to take a different attitude you have to open your eyes that it's a different germany you know when my father elderly holocaust survivor was the first one to come to berlin nobody else wanted to come to visit us and my father stood there and said you know you did the right thing because we are still here and under us are the rotting bones of our murderers. So, you know, life changes. You discover a lot about yourself, who you are, what you believe in, especially because you live in an uncertain, fragile moment of time. Unification of, of, of Germany, transformation of governments, transformation of sensibilities. You realize that history is not a story with a good or bad ending. It depends on what you will do.
3: Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Now you're the master plan architect for Memory Foundations, which is the reconstruction of the World Trade Center complex. And having been touched by both World War II and 9-11, and immigrating to the United States, being greeted by the Statue of Liberty, and witnessing the construction of the original World Trade Center and the race to the moon. You have a lot of history to consider and a lot of, of healing. What do you think is your most important responsibility as far as the master plan architect for the World Trade Center complex?
2: Well, I always thought that memory is the key to architecture. It's not the space you have. It's not just the functions. It's not just the complexity of urban planning. It's memory. Because memory under, underpins everything. Without memory, you would not know who we are, where we are going, who, who is around us, who, who is our mother, father, friend, enemy. We would know nothing if we didn't have memory. So that's kind of how I work on all my projects. I delve into memory. And the memory is not something you can find in a book. In books, you can find history. But memory is something that has to happen to you. It's something that has to do with the future, not in the past. And of course, to transmit, to to tell the story, to do something that isn't about you, isn't about glamour, isn't about just an object but something that, that has to do with the human spirit, that has to do with, with communicating something bigger than what we are, which is reality. That's really the function, as I see it, of any clan. And of course, Ground Zero, you know, you know, it was a very contested place. No one ever declared it a sacred place. But from the very beginning, I believe that really nothing should be built in the center, only a public space of memory. And I wanted to put the buildings, you know, Freedom Tower and all the other buildings, just as far as possible away from the memorial and to also reach the bedrock with a slurry wall and and make that experience available to all citizens. Because I always thought, you know, my father was a printer around, you know, Wall Street. My mother was, you know, uh, in the subways, uh, like most New Yorkers. I I knew that they would never be in these glamorous buildings, beautiful buildings, office buildings. They'd be where? On the streets of New York, in the subways, in the pass trains you know, trying to feed their families and survive. And I thought, that's what my project is about. It's not just about about the buildings. It's not just about the physicality. What is the perspective that a child on the street or a mother going to work uh, or a family uh, living, you know, far away from this site, what is it that this site will give them? And it should give them that that open space of the mind, that beauty of, of New York Street, the vitality that balances memory and activity and the rushing and then the retail of New York, it should give them also the sense of 1776 height of the tower, which is not just a high building, it's the Declaration of Independence, the the first document to give human rights to people. It should give us something of the light of what this country really is about and what New York is about and what New Yorkers are about and what the world should be about.
3: Well, as far as your creative process goes... You know, I'm really interested in this idea of memory. You talked about it being different from history, right? Memory has emotional resonance. But you also talk about it as being about the future, not about the past. And you have said that, for you, architecture is still very much about making music, just with a different instrument. That's true. Now that we've talked to you, I'm sort of starting to think of you as a composer of memory.
2: That is beautiful. (laughs) You're very right. You're a very perceptive person because, look, when we hear music, we see the violin, we see the cello, we see the tuba or the saxophone, the piano, but we don't see the music. We see the object, but we don't see the music. It's the same thing true in architecture. We can see the walls, we can see the concrete, the glass, the pavement, but we cannot really see the architecture because the architecture is in the atmosphere. It's in the ineffable in that space that is not measurable by any device except your own heart.
3: Mm-hmm. And I know when uh, entering some of the most magnificent buildings or even, even when you're just on a real estate hunt and you're trying to find a building that you can call home, when you walk into that space, there's something undefinable that talks to your subconscious about whether that can be home for you or not.
2: I always think that spaces, good ones, great buildings, great public spaces, great cities are smarter than we are because they remember what we forgot and they trigger in us that forgotten memory where we suddenly become part of a social community that has really a depth and a density of meaning that we were hardly aware of before.
3: So your work often deals with healing communities. And I've also noticed with your adeptness with memory and emotional resonance, you make choices with your buildings to honor and validate the trauma of the community as opposed to glossing over it. But you don't dwell in it or in any way sort of celebrate victimhood. They really feel like tributes to the strength needed to move forward, or at least that's my take.
2: It's true. Because if you did not believe in the future, if you were not an optimist, you should not be an architect. If you could only dwell on the irreversibility of the past, you would give up. There'd be nothing to do. Only if you're a believer that every foundation that you set is going to produce something better, give somebody a share of something meaningful, can you be an architect? So I always say the only thing you need for architecture is optimism. That's, you know you don't need anything else, actually. That's the, that's the only thing you need to have. And then everything will follow quite naturally. You'll acquire the mathematics, you'll acquire the knowledge, you can d- learn to draw, you can find the computer programs that allow you to calculate. But the one thing that no machine and no robot and no virtual reality will ever give you is that look towards the clearing of the sky, the, the, the free flight of, of, of the eagle into the center of the sun, something like that it cannot be gotten from anywhere. It has to come from you or from the world.
1: In developing these cultural monuments that endure for a long time and are going to communicate or evoke memory in future generations, how are you able to think in the future for people that aren't directly connected to something like 9-11? Because, you know, that happened in our lifetime, But in future generations, you know, how do you approach designing a space for them so that they can walk in and instantly make a connection or feel that memory, even though they weren't a part of that moment?
2: Great question. Well, architecture is a language. It's not a language of words. It's a language of light. It's a language of of temperature. It's a language of acoustics, language of proportions, language of materials. And you can use that language to tell a story. And basically, to me, architecture is a storytelling profession. I only discovered late in my life from my father that his father was one of these poor itinerant storytellers that went from shtuttle to shtuttle, from village to village, telling stories from an older tradition. And I think that's not so far from what I believe architecture is. It is a storytelling profession. It has to communicate something beyond itself, beyond its facades, beyond its windows, beyond its materials. It has to communicate something that only architecture can communicate. No book can ever communicate or a movie or game. Something that only architecture, because it's in this world, it's in the earth, it's in the sky, it's just what it is. It has to communicate that story somehow by using these, what seems to be limited means comparing to words, and yet very, very important means.
1: I want to switch gears for a moment and talk a little bit more about your personal life. So, your wife Nina is also your business partner. Could you tell us how that collaboration works?
2: Well, it either works or it's a divorce. You know, I know a lot of <laughs> I know a lot of architects and wives who try to work where divorced, or uh, where the wife and husband really work in different kind of departments. One is doing the accounting or something, and the other one is doing design. But I'm so lucky that uh, my wife Nina is not just a partner doing something you know, somewhere else. She's not behind me, she's beside me. I would never do what I do without her and without the amazing creative teams from all over the world that I've been so fortunate to work. You know, most architects talk about themselves as if they, they did all the work, but let's be honest. This work could never be done without real creativity of people who are artists, poets, uh, engineers themselves because it's such a big undertaking to, to create even a small building. So I'm very lucky to work with her because, you know, I always say I'm so lucky because I have a telephone, and I have only one telephone number on the telephone, which is my wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key to a successful marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is because I tell you, quite frankly, I would be terrible if I had to go to the meetings, if I had to go to the lawyers, if I had to negotiate contracts, if I had to do all the things that really normal architects have to do. But I have a partner that really does what she's brilliant at and what I would really be horrible at. Because, you know, if somebody said, Mr. Liebeskin, for this building, you'll get two cents. I said, great, fantastic. And she would have to nudge me and say, are you stupid? You you can't do it for two cents because you can't pay. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, sometimes naivete, you know, usually people use it derogatory way, but There is a virtue to naivete, because, you know, if you remained knowingly naive, you protect yourself. You can enter the realm of the arts. And I think all the great artists, writers, poets, there is a naivete I see there. They are not very clever in the world. And yet, how lucky to be with a partner who can guide you, can help you in dark moments where you would really be in despair, to say, no, no, no. And by the way, we are total opposites. Even on the Zodiac chart, I'm born May 12th, she's born November 13th, we are complete opposites. <laughs> when she says something great, I think it's terrible. When she says, this is, you know, a very honest person, I say, no, this is a terrible person. So, you know, it's it's a balance.
3: That sounds like a wonderful set of complementary strengths.
2: <laughs> we, have, we have so much fun.
3: that's key that fun sounds like key and that kind of segues into my next question you know in order to have the professional stamina to see these projects through the multi-year cycle it takes for them to be fully realized in order to navigate all the poets and magicians and artists and creative people around you that make up your team and in order to navigate your own internal neuroses like fear doubt dread and just external frustrations what would you say is your most effective personal navigation system? Is it optimism? Is it intuition?
2: I'm not neurotic. I'm very calm. I have a really, you know, more of a, probably of a Taoist attitude because I never had a goal in my life. You know, most business gurus tell you to have a goal and they try to reach your goal. But I never had a goal in my life. I always had a path. And the idea of a path is, Don't let people take you away from the path, whether they pull you to the right or to the left. Stay straight on the path. And you don't know where the path will lead you, but whatever it is, the path itself is meaningful. That's how I would say I've behaved. That's what I've done. I've never sought uh, for things. I never had goals. I never wanted to do this or that. It, It was, you know, you have to let the reality takeover.
3: What keeps you on the path? How, how do you not
2: deviate? You know, it's an, like an acrobat on a, on a, on a high wire. takes a lot of practice and you have to take the risk that you might fall, but you have to take the risk. Without the risk, you would never be able to do it. I have never strayed from my path. Uh, you know, there are a lot of temptations around, but I've never strayed from my path. Not willingly. Okay. I would at like to what you have. You know, at least you try. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, no one is perfect, and perfection itself, you know, is a fall of imperfection. Uh, There's no such thing as perfect thing anyway, but I think it's keeping a balance. I think it was Einstein who said, if you want to ride a bicycle, you have to be in balance. Then, if you don't ride it fast enough, you'd fall off.
3: Yeah, and at some point, you sort of have to relax into the flow of the momentum, Because if you struggle against it too much, then you're actively trying to balance, which just means you're overthinking it.
2: (laughs) Well, you're right. You know, uh, this is why I I think what most people think is real is not real, because most people think reality is what they can control. But in fact, I think it's just the other way around. Reality is what you cannot control. You're
3: giving us so much food for thought. (laughs) You know, you have such a sense of poetry and obviously a a way of painting with memory, a way of composing with memory. And I want to know when you walk down a city street, even New York City or or any city, what types of things strike you? Do you observe or experience that, that really touch you or move you and make you feel connected to that city?
2: Great question. Well, wherever you are, you're also in the whole world. You might be on a small street in New York but you're also at the same time walking on a street in China you are walking somewhere in 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 the Middle East you're in Africa because you come from Africa we all do you know you have to be connected in some way some strange way you have to be everywhere you have to be a person who is everywhere at once in a way because life is limited we are mortal we are finite and yet An experience of of a little street in the Bronx or wherever it might be connects you through the physical things that that you see on the street. When you see a homeless person, you think to yourself, this is unjust. This is not the America I want. When you see a graffiti on the wall, you say, you know, people want to express themselves. We have to give them the chance to become artists because everybody is. Uh, when you notice a bird flying in the sky, you think, wow, it's just like in the ancient times where they used to build cities by looking in which direction are the birds flying. So, you know, it triggers any any street. It, it's simultaneously this local small street, but it's also a street that even exceeds, you know, the expectations of global economies and goes way beyond to the unknown, to the mysterious, to, to dreams, to beauty that's all i can say i mean it, i don't know what else to to say because we are not what we think we are this is one last thing that, that just reminded me you know most people want architecture to give answers but think about it in science in in art in every every discipline we pose questions which cannot simply be answered to me that's also what architecture is it's not just an answer to something it poses a large question and that question can be a question that really addresses everyone in in, in, in in different ways.
3: Well, that is a perfect statement to end on. Thank you so much. Thank this you is so much. Wonderful. I
2: really, really enjoyed speaking with you and please please do me a favor, do cut it radically. <laughs> bye. Bye, bye, <bye-bye>. bye.
3: <sighs> I need to take a minute. That was <laughs> It was kind of overwhelming. It was so
1: overwhelming. I've never scribbled so many notes before on any call that I've been on, like meaningful notes that I'm going to go back and and look at and remember for a long time.
3: I was afraid to pick up a pencil because I just I was hanging on every word and I didn't want to distract myself with anything. (laughs) I was like like it felt almost spiritual and I'm not really a religious person so when I say that I don't really know what I mean and I don't want to sound hokey but I definitely felt like he was a conduit for not just his own personal wisdom but like the wisdom of the collective. Mm -hmm. There's this thing that I've recently become aware of this Idea called epigenetics. I don't even know why I'm talking about this because I'm so ignorant. I don't want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. But epigenetics, as I understand it, is basically genes expressing themselves differently through generations based on external environmental factors, not DNA, not changes to DNA. So, what that means is, I think, again, I don't want to pretend like I know more than I do, but I think that means that. That major traumas like the Holocaust, like World War II, like nine eleven, can actually express themselves in future generations in how their genes express through their cells. Yes, I have heard of this. It's fascinating. Then listening to this amazing architect with this incredible wealth of spirit and this incredible like I mean just in terms of the the time periods he's lived through and the. Passion and determination that it takes to make such an important impact on society. I really felt like he was a voice coming from many generations. Yeah, I don't really. <laughs> I, I know I'm going this a little deep, bit. Off, this is some deep shit, <laughs> Amy,
1: into the ether here. <laughs> I loved what he said about walking down the street in any city. Right, you can see things that not only connect you to the past, even if it's natural, like birds or the sky or whatever, but you see the humanity just through graffiti. Yes, people wanting to express themselves. Homelessness, you know, people who are in need. And it's like a unity of emotion and it's like the representation of humanity. And I think he was saying like, You can see the interconnectedness of us all just by walking down any city street.
3: And when he was saying that, not only was I feeling like connected to all of humanity, but I was thinking about the cobblestones and the structures that line those streets, right? Or the pavement and thinking about the organic materials from which they came, but also the people who designed them and labored over them and laid them in place and all of the history and memory that's just unerasable from every aspect of a city street and he just seems to have such a depth of vision when he sees things he doesn't see what's on the surface he sees what is there through time into the past and into the future yes So much good stuff. I really wanted him to tell me, like, what the secret to staying on the path is. (laughs) I wanted it to be something... something like, you could like adopt. Yeah. It's not an easy answer. It's like a Garmin GPS. You just get one on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have this watch and it's just, oh, I have this app and it just does just this for Just keep me it charged up, but yeah, and you're always
1: pointed in the right direction. I'm going to go crazy this weekend, just like thinking about memory and thinking about humanity and thinking about things like how spaces connect us and how they speak to us. And I mean, he talked about you know, we see the glass, we see walls, we see concrete, we see the musician playing the instrument. But the architecture itself, just like the music, it's in the atmosphere. It surrounds us, and it's in. He said, "It's in your own heart." And I thought that that was really powerful.
3: I also really respected his talking about architecture as a language, and that it's a storytelling art. And that language, I think the the obvious is thinking of that language is in terms of the the form and the materials. But he. Instantly said it's about the light and shadows and about the negative mm-hmm. space and about the invisible. And the acoustics um, and just the mm-hmm.
1: overall ether of, of the space. I have been to the World Trade Center complex before the museum opened, and it was still incredibly powerful. But I mean, I lived through that moment, so it's a little bit different than something that maybe happened a long time ago that I don't have connection with. I don't know how I would feel about like being in that kind of space. I don't know, like the the Vietnam Memorial. I don't really have a personal connection to that at all, but I mean, I guess those spaces are pretty powerful regardless because you start as you look at the names or as you look at the forms or all of the people, just looking at watching the people interact with the, the memorials is sometimes really emotional.
3: Yeah, so, and I, mean, I think it, that's part of the architectural process is considering how the people are going to interact with it, and that becomes part of the theater. Right. I have a confession to make, is I have not been to the World Trade Center site since. I, I'm, I can't, I don't think I can go. I mean...
1: It's hard. I have to admit, it was really hard. Was it really hard? But I didn't hard? go to the museum. Well, the museum wasn't open, so you, you know you see the fountain pits, mm-hmm. which are really powerful. Yeah, And we could like peek in to see what the museum was going to look like. Um, And it's, it's hard, really hard.
3: But I, I mean, what an undertaking to try and help several generations heal from that trauma,
1: but who better to fucking do it? Like seriously, (laughs) he is the best person to do that job. Like I couldn't think of anybody else. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please give us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, the images of Daniel's work and links to his social media at cleverpodcast.com.
3: And please do connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love to hear from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Model of your studio with music by L1011.